Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and this, and I'll be host today along with Ronaldo Brudico for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we'll be including questions and comments from you, our audience. We do already have several questions in queue that we've received by email, so if you'd like to place a question, please dial in to us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Um, one of the purposes of these monthly calls, as you all know, is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today we'll be discussing among current events, including whether or not there'll be a double-dip recession, the impact of the Gulf oil crisis, and latest issue on the jobs report. Um, additionally, our number two topic, we'll be talking about frameworks for understanding the fundamentals of investing, regardless of whether you are a new or sophisticated investor, with emphasis today on the role of index funds. After our first segment, we'll do an expanded lightning round Again, a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate with particular emphasis on ideas you can use yourself. Um, at the moment, I'm trying to tie in Ronaldo, um, who is out of town at the moment, and trying to make sure that we do have him on the air. Hello, Ronaldo. Is that uh, you? Howard? Yes. Uh, Howard, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Ronaldo. Ah, oh, thanks, Howard. I was I, I I was lost in hold there for a couple minutes. Uh, nice to talk with you again today. Yes. Okay. So, um, go ahead. Ronaldo, I was going to say it's time for your introduction to the call this month. Uh, so why don't you start us off, and uh, then we'll we'll go from there. Just a short, and I'm calling in folks from uh, the uh, from North Carolina. I've been on a East Coast trip this week, and. Uh, I hope this the call holds up well. We've uh, somewhat in the country at the moment, so uh, with all due, with a little bit of luck, we'll get we'll get through this just fine. Uh, the, the key issue that everybody looked at two key issues this week. Um, two weeks ago, they were looking at the euro and the euro crisis, and what the impact of that would be on uh, on Americans' recovery. Uh, and of late, in the last week or so, people start talking more about double dip. And so let me start with double dip and back into the euro, and then I want to go straight into the jobs report. With regard to the double dip, as you've heard repeatedly month after month on this call, the Academy does not perceive a double dip as uh, that likely a scenario. Could it happen? Yes, there's possibilities. Certainly way less than 50% chance. I would say probably less than 70, less than a 25% chance. Uh, we continue to believe that for a lot of good reasons, and hopefully some of you will ask me to give you some statistics in this call about what's going on with consumer confidence, what's going on with the manufacturing report, what's going on with export, uh, what's going on with T-bill sales. But when you look at all the data across the board and you strip the politics out of it and, and, uh, and the desire of, of certain aspects of the media to try and sell copy or television shows, you come up with a very favorable picture of a solid recovery that's that long, we said, gentle L-shaped recovery that's continuing to progress again uh, this month. Um, the euro issue is really not a capital markets issue. It's a political crisis in Europe. It's a real crisis. 
it's going to be bubbling for a couple of years. I believe that there will have to be a change in the way the European Monetary Union assembles itself because Europe will not want to continue to be responsible financially for those members of its uh, member states who choose to be profligate and out of control with their spending. And uh, the way it works right now, you can spend whatever you want to say if you're Greece. And uh, there's really little that the, the European Union can do to, to, to stop you except to jawbone you and threaten to cut off your, your money. But right now they're too bound together politically. So although it's quite easy to get relatively relatively easy to get into the monetary union there's no convenient way to deal with people exiting over a period of months or years we think it's a two-year trajectory if i might interrupt for a second we do have one question already that came in which is do you think that greece is going to be politically and fiscally able to straighten itself out um and in doing so preserve the economic union I, I kind of doubt that Greece is going to do everything it has to do to make good on the conditions that are in the IMF and the European bailout loan. Um, will they get, continue to get carried? I think they'll make enough progress that Europe will find it in its best interest to continue to fund Greece, uh, to provide the liquidity for Greece to continue to flail away. Now, uh, Greece is so far underwater that if they make even a little bit of constant progress, it will get rewarded. I think that the bigger issue, though, and, and you're going to see it arise in other ways. I mean, look, just last week we saw that Hungary was about to declare itself bankrupt. You, you have an issue with, the, with, with Europe where it needs to be able to find ways to exit countries from union that are in union and to be able to create that as a separate entity from the political union, which is called the Economic Union or European Union. So I, I believe that, that, that Greece will make continuous progress. I believe that Greece will not be able to make good on the requirements of the IMF or the European fund, and I believe that as they go further along this path, it will, it will underscore the need for some sort of political change. Now, that's not a capital markets crisis. That's a crisis within the politics of Europe, because from the point of view of, of Europe itself, Germany is continuing to boom along, and as you know, with the euro dropping, which it does in response to these crises, that makes Germany's export market, and Germany, of course, is by far the dominant player in the entire European Union, so that makes Germany's exports all the more economically viable, it makes other countries in the Union's exports more viable, and therefore the stronger countries in the Union are picking up the pace. I think that Italy, frankly, is a very big concern, although I think they'll get their act together because the Italian Senate two weeks ago announced that they intended to. Um, I think that some of the countries people have been afraid of, for example, Portugal, with a high ratio of debt, Portugal's already taking steps to right itself. Again, I, I, I think the, the capital markets in Europe are going to be okay. They have a political problem they're going to have to sort out so the capital markets aren't affected downstream. Now, I just want to turn real quickly, therefore, to the, the – as I said, the double dip is not likely at this time. We can talk about why. We've got a steady progression. And I'd like to now just focus for a moment on the jobs report. Many people – including the market itself, took a very negative view of the recent jobs report that was released uh, last Friday, in which it was showing that we had 441,000 new jobs created. Now, many people were saying, well, that's terrible because 400 and some thousand of them were census workers. Uh, it was incorrectly reported those people would only be employed for a month. In fact, those people would be employed till September. But, but what people didn't see in that jobs report, which they should have, was the 41,000 jobs which were created new this month on top of all the other job creation. And those new jobs came from industry. Uh, state governments have been cutting back. 
So what's really happened is the state governments, which are increasingly being impinged on for credit, uh, really need to get some sources of capital because they've been laying people off, further depressing the economy. I think the temporary stimulative effect of all these census workers getting hired helps to offset what's going on in the states, but clearly we need a solution to that. And we've been at the Academy saying for about three or four months now, we believe another stimulus bill needs to be aimed at the policemen, the firemen, the teachers, uh, the road construction workers, etc., who are needing to stay employed at the state level. And I believe that the federal government will, once it gets past the current crisis in the Gulf of Mexico, I think it'll be able to turn to that and, and, and make additional progress there. So we continue to project an upward-sloping economy with increasing job creation. Let's not forget that we went from 9.9% unemployment to 97 last month, and a lot of people the prior month came back into the workforce who had been out of the workforce intentionally. So you're talking about some reabsorption rates that are fairly significant. Lastly, but not least, let's just touch on the Gulf. Um, the economic impact of the Gulf oil crisis will not be as hopelessly severely negative as is being played in the media. Why is that? Because you're going to see tens of billions of dollars injected relatively fast in the Gulf because of the massive nature of the requirement of the cleanup. Uh, if you had a shrimp boat and you were working four or five or six months a year in the Gulf, that same shrimp goat is going to be able to work 12 months a year for the next couple of years in the Gulf. And it's going to be paid for by P BP or whoever their successor corporation is. So I think that the as horrific as the tragedy is in human terms, as horrific as it is in ecological terms, as much as it will probably change the Gulf Coast, certainly for the next 20 years, uh, all horrible, but from the economic point of view of the macro economy, the U.S. economy as it continues to recover, the U.S. is in recovery, China continues to boom along, India's booming along, Singapore's booming along, Southeast Asia's booming along, um, the part of Europe that's important is continuing to grow, although slower, as we predicted it would. So I'm, I'm very comfortable that the recovery globally is continuing, even though we've had these setbacks, which are getting played over in the press somewhat inaccurately. So that's, a, that's sort of my summary, Howard. What do you think? Well, I was going to say, regarding the Gulf issue, there was a report that came out uh, about five or six years ago uh, when, in, sorry, after the wake of Katrina. And the question at the time that was posed to our analysts at Morgan Stanley was, was this, in fact, a negative, from a purely economic point of view, a negative event or a positive event? And in fact, the matter, despite the enormous destruction, loss of human lives, and so forth, which made it a genuine tragedy in this country, the economic effect was actually to create a building boom um, that was a positive event. And it sounds like, and I'd like to get your comments in a little bit more depth about this, that the situation in the Gulf now is somewhat like that, that this horrible catastrophe is going to be triggering massive amounts of spending. Uh, which will also lead me to a second question after you answer this one. Um, do you think that's truly going to happen? And, and, and well, I, what do you feel that's based on? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, the the, um, the spending is going to happen. There's no question. And remember, it, it, it sounds sad to say this from the distance that we're all speaking, because if your life is dependent as an oysterman on oysters, it's your whole life goes up in smoke, so to speak, if you can't do the oysters. But you will be rehired to restore the marshes. 
and, and I suspect that the ultimate treatment for the marshes, as bad as they're going to get hit, is probably to burn them one year and have them regrow. That's probably nature's way of getting rid of that oil, which is enormously negative implications for the environment, I might say, in terms of the air quality, in terms of what it does for climate change. But And, and by the way, this for those of you who didn't notice it, this is the warmest by many, 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 many decades, the warmest spring on record here in the East Coast, in the northeastern section of the United States. Uh, five, uh, I believe it's five degrees above normal this year, which is quite a huge amount. In any event, what's going to happen in the Gulf, I think, Howard, is that the, the, the entire shrimping industry has not been a growth industry. In fact, it's been in slight, steady, constant decline for a number of years now. Um, oystering along the Gulf Coast is not has not been a growth industry. And what's going to happen is those two are going to be so badly affected, I believe, that people will the, – the, the Gulf spill is going to be a transition vehicle for those people who choose to remain in the Gulf. Those people will end up, uh, I believe, in new occupations for at least the next five or six years, and that will provide a transition bridge for a new base of the economy. I suspect offshore drilling in shallow water – will be turned back on relatively soon. But what's going to have to happen, clearly, is that offshore drilling at deep levels, which is this, the, the horizon is the first one, um, the 5,000 foot and below levels, I think that's, that's going to be frozen for years to come, if ever reopened, because by time it's unfrozen, by the time they figure out how to do it safely, it'll be past the point that we want the oil. So my guess is that the Gulf is about to see a transition in terms of the total number of jobs in the oil and petrochemical industries. I think it's about to see a transition where it's going to see less and less of it. And, so, and by the way, I think that there's going to be also reduction in refining. Now, with the advent of global warming, we clearly, with climate change, are going to have more destruction of the refinery capacity, I believe, along the Gulf Coast over the next decade. So there will be some rebuilding as we, because we can't take all those refineries out. But 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 you're on a, an entropy situation. It's going to start to devolve rather than go steady or build up. And that boom of new oil and gas jobs from offshore rigs to, in in the five thousand to seven thousand to ten thousand foot depths. I don't think that's going to happen for many years because I believe they now understand that the pressure at those depths and the coldness of the water at those depths makes it inherently uneconomic, which is something we wrote a couple of years ago, by the way, when we reported that the cost of a barrel of oil goes up the deeper and quite a bit up the deeper you got to go to get it. In fact, we once published a paper that said the price of oil would have to be $75 at the wellhead to recover to recover oil safely from 7,500 feet below ground. We now know that was a conservative number, and we now know the technology does not exist to drill at those levels successfully and safely. Now, can they do better than they did? Sure. I mean, look at all the human errors that went into this catastrophe, including they didn't change the battery when they knew the battery went out on the flow restrictor. Uh, the decision to continue pumping the mud when they had the option of, of cementing before stopping the mud and then cementing. I mean, it was a series of bad human decisions that fight the day of the blow-up on the rig itself where BP insisted they keep going faster. All of these factors have brought to the American public's attention and the world's attention what's in inherently been going on in the oil industry, which is, in a nutshell, they took control of the regulators back in 2001, the Mining and Mineral Services, MMS. Uh, they, they used literally used sex and amphetamines uh, to get those regulators in the pocket and in bed, literally, not just figuratively, with the oil industry, 
so that the oil industry could do anything it wants. I mean, one of the interesting statistics of this whole Gulf crisis is 24 hours before the BP disaster, BP was granted three permits within 24 hours or less on significant issues, which clearly there had been no review of. And, and you'll see more and more scandal coming out now. Well, now that that's out, and the MMS has been going to be broken up into three different divisions, which it should be, so that it doesn't both regulate and promote the same industry and collect revenues, by the way, they undercollected. then I think what's going to happen is you're going to see that the that true regulation will require a standard of care of the oil industry. It's probably not going to be able to meet because the price of oil then goes too high, and the alternatives, which are already competitive economically, become a larger and larger share of the marketplace. Well, That's what that, I think that brings us to another question that, that popped up um, what do you think that this crisis would do in terms of oil pricing, that pricing of oil barrels uh, and gas at the pump, um, given that this is an election year and given that there's a lot of pressure on the oil companies to be good citizens? Well, I think, first of all, as you, uh, you Howard, have often trumpeted the correct conclusion that oil prices tend to go down uh, in every two years with the election cycle so that the oil industry doesn't have a black eye going through the replacement of its politicians, most of whom work for the oil industry. So the, the, the oil industry has done that historically. This year will be no different. So in, in a non-election year, they would have played this Gulf crisis as, oh, my God, all this oil is being lost. The price is going to go scarcity. With less oil, we're going to have to go through the roof and charge more prices. And they would have run it up a buck, buck and a half. But they're choosing not to for two reasons this year. One, it's an election year, so they don't want to have a black eye. And two, they know the whole world's watching in a way that hasn't been watching for a long, long time. And given that, the oil industry, I think, now is, is really concerned that um, they want to stop the damage at BP. Uh, I think BP is going to be severely damaged. I think the market has reflected that in the stock of BP this last week. It's lost over half its market cap at this point, I believe. And I believe that you're going to see that the oil industry is going to try to cut the losses with just the damage done to BP. I don't think that's going to be possible. So I'm not sure they're going to be able to continue to run prices up using the fear and scarcity tactics that they have in the past. Combine that with the increasingly inexpensive availability of natural gas across the U.S. in huge quantities now. I, I, I really believe that we're at the end of the king oil period. Do you think that we're going to see an increase because of this event, um, in the same way that Katrina negatively impacted uh, Bush II and the, the, the Gulf War negatively impacted Bush I uh, and the economic downturn that happened after that, do you think that we're going to see a real sea change in this country in terms of oil versus other alternative sources of energy? Is this, is I really this, do. Is this the opening I, shot across the bow, so to speak? I, I do. I do, Howard. You know, I, I just want to make two comments. One, I think that, you know, whatever people think of President Obama, he's probably one of the smartest men to ever sit in the, White, in the Oval Office. And for him to have made such a foolish statement three weeks before the blowout, that they, the oil industry has really got their act together in offshore drilling, so we can, you know, we can get that oil out safely. To have that much egg on his face, he now knows he was grossly misled. His administration was misled. Ken Salazar was either part of the problem, which I suspect he was, or was duped by the people who were in charge of MMS. So, because remember that the, the MMS scandal with sex and drugs happened after Obama took office, and Salazar didn't close them down. So you have, a, you have a likelihood now that the president is focusing in a longitudinal way on the oil industry. Remember what the former head of the CIA, Woolsey, said, Admiral Woolsey, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. We found a better way to do things. 
Um, the, the oil era is not going to end because we run out of oil. It's because we find a better way to do it that's less toxic, less expensive, uh, and creates more jobs here at home. So I believe this president, for sure, if he's elected to a second term, will succeed in changing the dynamic. I believe he may even be able to change the dynamic with the two years he has left. Uh, but if he's reelected, absolutely certainly it will happen. In the two years left, he's going to have his hands full because the oil industry is extremely powerful, as is obvious, by the fact that they have not been able to pass a law to raise the cap on damages above $75 million when they're spending $48 million a day right now down in the Gulf. So, I mean, this is crazy. 75 total? It's nuts. So I, I think what you're going to find is that that's the end of it, and it is going to be a sea change. I think the other comment I want to make real quickly is we've finally seen what happens when you have an agency of the U.S. government which is pledged to both promote and regulate the same industry. What happens is promotion takes over from regulation, and what you have is an, an agency that serves the interest of the, of the industry rather than serves the interest of the people. The only other agency in government with that same inherent conflict of interest is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and it's doing the exact same thing. Nuclear energy is inherently unsafe, it's inherently stupid, it's inherently the most expensive technology in the world, and it off-gasses toxic quantities of cancer-causing chemicals, i.e. strontium-90, every single day in normal operation without any blow-ups, and we have no way to dispose of the waste. So we have a problem coming in nuclear that will make the, the, the Gulf crisis look like small change if we don't address it now. And I hope the sea change goes to affect that as well, not just the oil industry. Ronaldo, a related question about the uh, – uh, there was a vote in California in the primaries yesterday that defeated a proposal that was almost solely sponsored uh, by Pacific Gas and Electric that would deny cities the ability to create their own energy entities uh, without a two-thirds vote of the uh, population. Uh, and the – Pacific Gas and Electric outspent their opponents something like 468 to 1, according to a New York Times story this morning. Um, do you think that's going to have a related effect of people waking up to manipulations by the uh, energy industries um, as to how they run their lives and how they run our sources of power? Well, you know, that was a Prop 14 or Prop 16, right? Howard? I don't remember which number it was. Um, was it 14 or 16? Yeah, I was extremely pleased with that outcome for this reason. Um, I, I, and when I get back to California in a few days, I want to I want to try and start tracing how did the word get out. In other words, how did people get smart on that one? Because as you just correctly noted in your statement of the question, that was almost entirely sponsored by Pacific Gas and Electric. And they pitched it as give people the power to control um, where their money spent buying electricity, uh, when clearly the whole thing was a way to preserve a uh, quasi-monopoly for PG&E in PG&E territory. Actually, a monopoly in PG&E territory. Uh, to me, it's a fascinating thing. If anybody on this call is in, interested at all, I'd love to do a follow-up report on how did the word get out that that was a piece of of a referendum that was completely put up by private industry for the benefit of private industry with completely misleading advertising and was defeated and, and with, with virtually no financial opposition. So it wasn't that better commercials got out. As you say, it was $486 to every dollar the other side spent. What caused the American people to be able to see through the commercials on this one and create that result? That, to me, is a fascinating question. I think that's an important lesson for us all to learn is like how exactly how did that happen? What sources? Was it social media? It certainly wasn't the press, uh, because I don't remember seeing very many articles about this in the regular press at all. 
Uh, I can't recall seeing one significant article in the news section. I saw an editorial or two, but it's amazing. I, I saw nothing on it covered. Of course, the press never covers the news. That's not what it's seen as a topic for another day, too. Yeah. Anyway, at this moment, let me just remind everybody, if you want to place a call, uh, be sure to dial in at our number, 347-989-8946, and press the number one. We'll see your hand pop up on our screen and be able to key you in for a direct question of Ronaldo. Uh, but at this point, Ronaldo, it's time for us to move on to our lightning round. And uh, as usual, it's a series of quick economic comments and insights on major asset classes, such as bonds, dollar, energy, real estate, uh, again, with particular emphasis on ideas that our listeners can use themselves. All right, well, we'll kick it off with you, Ronaldo. What do you think? Well, uh, first off, I, I think um, as tragic as the foreclosures have been, I believe they're peaking out. So uh, this month, as you know, we had a 3% decrease in, in new foreclosure listings, and that's a good thing. And so it's the beginning of the end of the foreclosure wave. Now, we had more foreclosures last month than ever before because it takes quite a few months to get through the pipeline. So there's a lot of pain still in the system. But I believe that um, foreclosures now, will have, we've, we've, the ebb, we've hit the peak of the tide, the wave, and, and now it's going to start slowly coming back down, which will add stability to the housing market. Uh, number two, you're seeing in many areas of the country, actually most areas of the country now, you're seeing a recovery of both the prices firmed up and in some cases recovered upward on existing housing stock, and you're also seeing uh, more action now on uh, new housing stock. Um, so I see the, the, um, the housing sector the, is firming up, still a place where if you've got cash and you can get a loan for the difference, uh, it's a great time to buy. The rates are at levels you probably won't see in another year. They'll be gone. And you've got the, close to the bottom of the market. So I would definitely get into the, the, the housing area. So it looks good right now. Uh, I see uh, more trouble. a question on that. Again, Ronaldo, before we go on to the next topic, um, do you find that mortgages are readily available at this point in time versus uh, commercial loans, which seem to be impossible to track down? Well, I think mortgages, let's talk about commercial loans. I think mortgages, um, yes, if you're 750 or more, if you're 750 or less in, in California, for example, if you're a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac qualified borrower, no question you can get money. They're throwing it at you. If you can qualify with, a, with, with your wage slip, uh, and you hit the ratios. Uh, banks want those loans. Uh, independent loan brokers are back in business wanting those loans because Fannie and Freddie are continuing to absorb those and will absorb those. That's not a problem. I think the real problem is um, with the continuing high unemployment in places like California, uh, with the difficulty of a seller to get their house appraised at a fair value because the appraisers are all dropping the low, the, the price is so low that the sellers are going, oh my gosh, if I sell at that price, I'll get just, you know, get massacred. So I think the issues are not in the ability to get the mortgage if you're qualified, a qualified loan. Now, if you're non-qualified, which unfortunately is a great part of California, places like New York, Hawaii, because the real estate costs are so much higher and the mortgages are for higher that you can't get a qualifying loan that will get you the house at a number below 750. Um, those situations are still extremely difficult because you don't have uh, high-end uh, jumbo loans widely available. Now, I think your outfit, uh, Morgan Stanley, started making them available for its client base, so they are starting to come back on the market. I know that there's been a lot of money sitting on the sidelines that's starting to come back, and now they believe that we've passed the bottom. So some of the upper end uh, money that is held either in trusts 
or in other forms is starting to come back into the housing market. But basically, the high-end market, meaning homes with values of a million or more, uh, are really, really having a hard time recovering, and I don't see that changing in the next month or two. Right. Uh, and we know, do have a, a call-in question as well, Ronaldo, on this. Well, uh, I'm going to open up this line, and it's for the last four digits of the phone number are 9095, I believe. I'm reading my screen correctly, and I'm going to key you in right now. Go ahead with your question. Great. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Howard. Good afternoon, Ronaldo. This is Jordana. Hi, Jordana. Hi, I was just wondering with the number of foreclosures that are happening, do you think that there'll have to be a revamp on the effect uh, on people's credit, not affecting them for so long? Uh, unfortunately, no. I think, I think first of all, um, financial reform, which is struggling to get through and uh, I think will get through committee, and I believe we'll have a bill that's not what I would hope it would have been, but certainly several steps in the right direction, won't deal with that question. I, I think that what, what you're going to see is um, a lot of wreckage in pe people's personal financial affairs for years to come. Uh, in the case of people who go through a foreclosure, at least seven years. Um, I do think that there will be other ways, however, to obtain credit one, two years from now. And why I say that is because part of what is going to get through the Credit Reform Act is um, a, 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 a different level of fairness is going to start being applied to, to consumer debt. And so what's going to happen is that the, the, the methodology that's been used up until now to evaluate, which is quite flawed in my personal opinion, the methodology that's been used uh, to, um, to, to, to credit somebody for a house purchase, for example, is your score, your credit score, which actually has a lot of biases built into it that are not particularly useful or accurate. Uh, those biases tend to work most against people who are self-employed. works most against people who have part of their compensation in the form of options or stock options and that sort of thing. works very badly against people who are self-employed. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of biases built into the way we do it. And, and frankly, the credit score numbers themselves need to be reexamined because we all know that it's a flawed system and it so, became so dominant overnight that it gives these odd results. I think there'll be a reexamination of that as part of uh, the whole attempt to create a credit oversight uh, board within either the Fed or as an independent agency. And I think something like that will survive the bill when it's through committee. So to me, I think there's going to be a change in the way credit is, is, is achieved. Uh, I think you're gonna, people are going to be smart enough in the future to say, wait a minute, um, what do I really think about this person's credit, and do I think it's as bad as it, the, the, the file would indicate just looking at a cold number and the fact they filed a foreclosure, or is this something to get caught up in a situation where it's understandable they went underwater? So if you go underwater, no, I don't think you can expect it's going to be, it's going to be gone in the, the next t day. But I do believe uh, that you'll have more chances for credit in the future than you do under the current system when the Credit Reform Act is passed. Ronaldo, isn't it kind of a balancing act, though, to make sure that those people, I mean, part of the reason we got into this problem is giving easy credit to people who really should not be qualified for home mortgages. Well, isn't you know, wait, wait, let's, let, let's, let's, let's qualify that. Okay. This wasn't easy credit. This was theft. Okay, people, people, people who couldn't read loan documents, Howard, were being encouraged by loan brokers, some of whom, like the people who ran Country Ride, should have gone to jail, literally. Uh, I'm embarrassed that the man who ran that company was an Italian. 
I mean, what they were doing was clearly attempting to create a real estate bubble and taking a piece off of every single transaction, encouraging people who had no business filing for a home or certainly a home of the value they were trying to purchase. And it was all done as a hustle, as a a carnival game. Uh, And I think that's over. So I believe that the, 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 the number of times that a well-meaning, well-intentioned family tried to buy a home, and it was beyond their means. Uh, one, I think their loan broker probably lied to them and told them that they were easily able to handle it. Two, they were lied to and told, don't worry, you can sell it in two years and make a big profit and trade up to a bigger house. Three, I don't think they even understood what the fine print said in the first place. I, I, I believe what, what's, what the, the financial regulator has been saying, uh, what's your name, that woman who I, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who's been in charge of, of looking at for Congress what happened here? And she said, you know, people people weren't capable of reading these 14-page single-space documents and knowing what they meant, and and, and the whole thing was a game. Uh, the game has gone bust. I think going forward, people with legitimate needs and who really are trying to find a place, a shelter to live in, not a shelter for their money. I think those people will find it difficult to buy a house in the future, but when they can buy a house, it will be one that they can actually afford. And they will think more about living in their house than they will think of it as an ATM machine. And that's where we went wrong. Now, for those people who were playing, who were gambling, who were doing, you know, one and two and three houses and flipping and, you know, all that sort of thing, and cooperating with these scam brokers and these scam uh, financial – and by the way, some of the major names in the business – B of A, Wells Fargo, we're all encouraging totally abhorrent practices, which the new Consumer Protection Agency, I think, will stop. Uh, So those people, are they're going to get hit hard, and I don't think that game's coming back, and I don't think it should. But I think legitimate homeowners will find that they can do it. Now, they're going to have to live in an apartment longer, save up money longer, in order to be able to achieve that home. But that was always the case. It's only since the bubble of 2001 that, that we, we thought for somehow magically, you know, you could, you, could, you could end up owning a home where the payment was as large as your entire paycheck. What people were thinking, I don't know, and I believe they do not know how, what they signed. Remember, a lot of these contracts went down, Howard, because people signed basically um, adjustable rate mortgages. So they thought their, their, their payment was going to be one number per month, and then, you know, six months later, it's, it's 30 40 50% or more higher than what they thought. And that's when they said, oh, my God, what did the fine print say? Right. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to some of the other asset classes. Any particular Well, I was starting to say I'm concerned. I was concerned about, I'm still concerned about commercial real estate, mm-hmm. I, and particularly in California, but in many markets. I think we still have some rough sledding to go with commercial real estate. I think we might be able to avoid the worst of it. Uh, because the economy is picking up steam as fast as commercial real estate seems to get it refinanced. So it may be where to get by on it, but right now there's a serious overhang, and it's going to be there for at least a year or more. I think there's a – you know, people ask me a lot about gold, uh, which I say uh, – last month I said it again. If you own it, keep it. If you don't, don't bother buying it. Uh, I think gold, just let it ride. It's, it's, it, it, there's a lot of reasons why people could say it could go up a few. There's a lot of reasons why people say it could go down a few hundred dollars. I don't think that's the place to play right now. I do believe selectively buying in the stock market, if you're careful, uh, and you're buying companies with good earnings, uh, with a decent dividend policy, by the way. Um, you know, I, 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 what, three months ago I started telling people, as you know, about GE, and I normally don't like to talk about individual stocks. The only reason I even mention it from time to time is because I want people to look at something which, is a, which has historically had a good dividend. The stock has come down quite a bit, and now it's got a chance to begin to recover, which it's been doing. And I believe without the threat of certain capital market overhangs, in their case, GE Capital, 
that kind of a stock can do well and likely will produce a bigger dividend. So if you can find a stock that's today depressed and you buy it, it's got a 2 or 3% dividend, which is not unheard of, by the way, uh, that same stock could be producing 3 4 5% dividend in a year or two out. And I'm fe I feel that's a little safer given that I think inflation is going to be a risk, um, certainly by the fourth quarter. And therefore, I'm not a big bond fan right now. Uh, I think there's as much downside uh, risk to bonds uh, as there is upside. Now, this euro thing is keeping American Treasury strong. As you know, I mentioned that at the outset. Uh, purchase of American Treasuries is remaining very strong because of the instability with the euro. Uh, we have become, and also because the yen is doing so poorly, as I would expect it to do, given the political crisis going on. I mean, the prime minister stepping down. Uh, the country has basically not figured out the solution to its what is now 20-year economic problem. It's clear it's continuing. So I, I feel that the American dollar is like a refuge right now for people. It's a flight to safety. That will change when things even out, uh, particularly in Europe. And therefore, I do believe at some point there's some risk on the downside uh, to the bond market uh, right now. It appears safe to people, and I think that's overly optimistic. Right. Uh, any, any other specific asset classes in mind? Well, there's one question also came in. Uh, where do you see the euro versus the dollar going um, sure. in your future okay. and long term? Yeah, and, and, and you know, I know we're going to talk about ETFs in this call, so I'm going to specifically save that asset class because I think that's a good way to play the stock market today, actually, or other kinds of assets related to stocks. But I'm going to keep that off until we talk about ETF. Uh, Long-term, short-term. Well, short-term, the euro, uh, I think, is going to continue to exhibit the weakness you see right now because of the political problem that infects the euro that we've talked about. I don't think the euro is going to strengthen dramatically in the next 12 months because I don't think they can get the problem fixed in 12 months. I do believe it will strengthen some in the next foreseeable future, three, six, nine months, just because I think it's, it's in a way it's oversold right now. And when people start to realize that the euro is more a function of what's going on in, in, in Germany and France uh, than it is uh, what's going on in, uh, in uh, Spain, and I do think Spain's doing much better than people think. Uh, when people realize that um, Greece isn't what keeps the euro at where it belongs, but really what Germany and France does, then they'll realize maybe the euro got a little oversold. And so I would expect to have it creep up. I know I have a business lecture. I'm giving a series of lectures in Europe in September, and I'm thinking of buying my euros now before I go over because I think by September they might be higher than they are today. Um, and so as a precaution, I'll probably buy them before. Let me ask a related question to the euro-dollar relationship. When the euro drops, as it has recently, and also given that in 2008, before the economic crisis, it was a dollar sixty. Um, now it was somewhere around a dollar eighteen to a dollar twenty, depending on moment-to-moment trade and transactions. In a scenario like that, who are the winners and who are the losers? Which when the euro drops, when the euro drops, which countries benefit, which countries lose? Well, look, for sure Germany benefits because Germany um, is, is, is an export economy, uh, and they're particularly doing well, much better than actually Americans are over in Asia. Um, and I would say so Germany benefits for certain. Uh, I think France benefits, uh, particularly because France is so busy selling its export industries, and, and the top industry they have for export, I believe, is nuclear. Um, I think it also makes the... Uh, the air, um, the aircraft industry, uh, much more competitive for them. Uh, I think that 
European agency uh, that, as you know, makes their airplanes, uh, which is a combination of German, French, and English primarily. Right. Having just um, flown in both an Airbus and a Boeing 747, I'll tell you, the Airbus is a heck of a lot nicer ride. Well, it is. It's vehicle. 25 years younger. 20 True. plus years younger, right. uh, and and I think what's look that the, the two big stories going on in the air in the industry right now are the 737 continues to be produced in enormous quantities. Uh, it's probably one of the most, if not the most, successful airplane ever built, and and Boeing will continue. I mean, they're adding more capacity as we speak. Uh, so that's for the foreseeable future the workhorse of the industry. Uh, the 787, the Dreamliner, is without a doubt uh, once they get all the problems behind them, which I know they still haven't. But they're starting to deliver, and, and, and that will probably be a game-changer in the industry. So the technology goes to Boeing at this point. Clearly, they have the lead on that. I think the, uh, the, the Euro, which is what your question was about, though, the Euro is giving a bigger advantage than existed up until just four months ago uh, to the Europeans. And I think that you're going to see uh, Airbus uh, continue to be much more uh, competitive as a result of that. I think that the, the decision they made, um, to make that giant double-decker uh, aircraft, which has not yet come to the market and probably won't for another couple of years, a uh, year or two, I think. Uh, that's a very big gamble. I'm not sure that it will pay off, uh, and it might depress the, the earnings for that reason. But but basically, there will be an export advantage because of the, the euro. So another winner. A loser, in, in it actually, is the actually, United States. Actually, I think the first of the new Airbuses, uh, that double-decker you're talking about, I think Lufthansa is taking possession of one as we speak, and the first one goes online, I think, at the end of this month. Really? Okay, well, yeah. I've lost track of it. Yeah, so it's not a year yeah. away. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see because, as you know, that's really designed for these huge density routes to China and the Orient. Uh, and it may be the way that China starts to visit all of us. But the, the, uh, we, we'll wait and see um, how successful that aircraft is because it really, I mean, the density of passengers on that is, is, is mind-boggling. But again, hey, it wasn't the 747 when it first took off, and look, look what a great plane, as you just pointed out, that, that is. Bid. But, but the losers on the euro, when the euro comes down, clearly is the U.S., which has to compete in, 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 in world markets with a stronger dollar, uh, which makes our export industries really suffer a huge penalty at a time when we really needed to, to have our exports grow, and they had been up until then. Uh, so I see that as a, a loser. I see another loser in, the, um, in some of the uh, countries that are uh, heavily pegged to dollar transactions. Uh, I see winners in Eastern Europe. So a winner in Eastern Europe, the, these newly emerged Eastern European countries, uh, will do well because with the with the euro lower, it will make it easier for people to get to those countries and easier to spend money there. So whereas uh, six months ago before the euro crisis, I would have predicted decreasing travel of Americans overseas and increasing Amer overseas travel to America, I think uh, the, re the reverse is likely to be the effect of this dramatic drop in the euro. There are other currencies, however, you know some of them, the Australian dollar, for example, which will continue to do very well as against both the euro and the dollar. Uh, the Brazilian real, which has held up really, really well. I mean, for a developing country currency, it's held up phenomenally well in this last crisis. And I think it's, well, I don't know what it's today, but was last time I looked was 53, 54 um, to, the, to the dollar. That, if that continues, which I think it will, um, that's a country that's, that's done well despite the euro drop. And in fact, um, it will make it somewhat 
less economic because Brazil sells so much to Europe. But I think uh, Brazil is selling so much now to Latin America where the euro doesn't have that impact into Asia that uh, Brazil will not be adversely affected by the euro top. So I think that currency will remain strong as against both the euro and the dollar, and stronger actually over time against both. So there's winners, losers, and there are those to whom it has no impact. Okay, well, Ronaldo, it's time for us to move on to our next area. And again, first a reminder, if you want to place a question, I know we did have one, I think, from overseas that then disappeared. We didn't get a chance to uh, answer it. Um, but again, call us in at 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Okay, our second topic today is frameworks for understanding the fundamental elements of investing regardless of whether you are a new or a sophisticated investor, with emphasis today on the role of index funds. So, Ronaldo, you want to kick that off? And we well, no, you know what? I, I think, one, Howard, I, I, that one back and you, forth. You know what? I think I mean, yeah, let's, I mean, let's just tell people. What we're doing here is we've had a request that's come up a number of times that we touch on one or more of the things that, that you might hear talked about in the newspapers or on TV or that you might hear overheard a friend say whatever. And there was a request, several requests we've gotten to, to just do some basic defining, some definitional work, so people will understand what we mean or others mean when they use some of these terms. And, and the one that we came up for this week was an ETF. Um, and, and Howard, I mean, why don't you, because you deal with them every day, why don't you go ahead and explain to people, and I buy it and sell them, but I think you're probably better to explain it. Okay. Again, essentially an ETF is what we know, call an exchange-traded fund. Now, everybody, I think, is familiar with the concept of mutual funds, and a mutual fund is really nothing but a group of investors um, who purchase, through a manager, a collection of either stocks or bonds or a combination. And those mutual funds can focus on any number of areas from foreign stocks to domestic stocks, energy stocks, hundreds and hundreds, literally thousands of different categories and firms promoting those. Now, with a mutual fund, when you purchase a mutual fund, you join a pool of literally thousands to millions of people investing in the same entity, and that entity is controlled by a manager or management team. An ETF is somewhat similar to that, except it has generally a limited number of shares, just like stocks are issued in a limited number of shares. And... Unlike an ETF, I'm sorry, unlike a mutual fund, it is not what we call actively managed, meaning they create a portfolio, they hold the portfolio, and you can move in and out of an ETF just like you would any other stock, selling it at will at any point in time. So um, let me just throw in here, so as I said earlier, the lightning round, I wanted to come back to ETFs when I, as one of the categories of investment. So an ETF, as, and I alluded to the fact that you could buy the, the market by buying an ETF, what that means is, there is an ETF, an electronic exchange fund, that you, you can actually buy that holds the Fortune, uh, the um, uh, S&P 500 in it, right. or and that it, holds the entire New York Stock Exchange, or right, any other you. combination that, that, that's applicable to what you think. So if you think the market as a whole is going to go up, but you don't, want to, you don't want to trust your ability to pick individual stocks, then you can buy an ETF, in effect, on the market, which is an aggregation of the stocks in the market at that time. Go ahead, Howard, you want to say something? I was going to say, the, uh, the S&P, uh, the very first of these exchange-traded funds that came out about a decade ago was the S&P 500. You could literally just buy the whole 500 with one purchase. And you want to sell it the next day, you could sell it. You could move in and out at will. Um, as opposed to a mutual fund, 
Mutual funds are designed for long-term purchases. They're particularly appropriate for pension and 401k funds um, because they have a much higher what's known as internal expense ratio. And these expenses go pay for their marketing team, their research team, um, the manager fees, and so on and so forth. And those fees, whether they're visible or invisible, and a lot of them are invisible, uh, including the trading costs of a particular fund, can range anywhere from 1% to 4% of the earnings of that fund. So if the fund actually tells you it's earning 15%, it may have earned 19% that year, in fact, of matter. By contrast, exchange-traded funds have very low expense ratios, sometimes one-fifth to one-tenth as expensive a comparable mutual fund. Even the Vanguard 500 mutual fund, which is the most widely held mutual fund in the world, they have a comparable ETF that Vanguard's come out with of the 500, not actively managed the way the other one is, and it is still about one-fifth as expensive to own as the S&P fund. Yeah, so as an example, uh, what did the, uh, based on the, on the S&P or the Dow, take the Dow, most people know the Dow, what, what, what was the market close today on the Dow, Howard? I think we, actually we were about 9,900 yesterday, and we're a little over 10,000 today with the market bouncing okay. around. So, yeah, and it's bouncing around 100 points down, 100 points up, kind of thing. So let's just call it roughly 990 to 1,000. So if you believe, as I do, frankly, that the market's going to go to at least 1,100 in the not-too-distant future, which would be a 10% move on the Dow, uh, and frankly, it could be that or better on the S&P for reasons I won't go into, uh, and, and there's an argument it could be that or less on the S&P for reasons I won't go into because it has to do with large-cap stocks. But you could say, gee, you know, if I think the market's going to go up 10% in the next three, six, nine months, I can buy an ETF of the whole market. It goes up 10%. You have to pay a small fee, much smaller, as Howard's pointing out, one-fifth of what you would pay for a mutual fund, and you can own the whole market. So if the market as an average rises, you make money. If the market as an average drops, you lose money. If the market goes sideways, it's neither good nor bad. And the cost to stay in it is negligible because the cost of management is virtually negligible. So that's what an ETF is. And by the way, uh, these uh, exchange-traded funds, ETFs, are available not just for stocks and bonds. They're available for commodities. You know I mean, if you believe that the building trades are going to do better, uh, there are certain metals that Copper, for example, it's heavily used in construction. Um, you could buy copper by itself, an ETF on it. You could buy an ETF on, on a, a builder's uh, a, a basket of, of, of builder's commodities. You can buy it on, on uh, some of the base commodities, and you can buy it on specialized commodities. So an ETF is as varied as any other way you can imagine to have an investment. And what it does is it absolves you of the need to know a lot about any one thing, so that you can pick a field or an aggregate, the market as a whole, and invest in it knowing just what you think about that and not having to know what the individual component's doing. Right. And also, I also want to talk a little bit, as we said in the question, about how do you frame thinking about investments? And this is more geared towards both, again, sophisticated investors uh, as well as new investors. But one of the things that is often overlooked when people work with an advisor is the concept of time. Um, and when we work with a client, normally at, at Morgan Stanley, we look at somebody's assets and their income as if it's a, essentially a movie or a story about their life. And what we ask people first, or what I ask people first certainly, is what do you want on the last page? And by that, very simply, I mean if you're thinking about the totality of your income, your expenses, your investments, all the things that you're doing in your life that impact you financially, 
everyone should have some rough notion of what the goal is that they're trying to accomplish. And it's not just simply making more money. People have very specific goals in their life, whether it's if you're a young couple buying a home, getting married, uh, putting kids through college, saving for retirement, uh, investing so you can retire early. Uh, there's a whole host of things, buying a vacation home, buying a second house. Um, everyone has their own drama in their life. That is what they want to accomplish. And I think it's really important for people who get into investing to have that and to know what that really is. Well, uh, and, no uh, question. Because it, it, you've got to have some sense of the port to which you're sailing or no wind is a good one. But, I, you know, it's one of the things they need, Howard, and, and I want to just interject it here because I mean, we're going to run out of time soon, and that is I strongly believe people don't have enough good information. The reason we go to the trouble to do this call is to give people independent, good information that I don't make any money off of telling them, and they, you don't make any money telling them. This is a public service. And one of the things I'd like people to do is let us know. Drop a line to the Academy. I'm thinking of starting a Twitter uh, chain of, 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 of communications, and the reason is I find just too much stuff is happening in the 30 days between these calls. And I'm, I'm seriously thinking of putting out a series of Twitter messages as frequently as, as market-important information happens because my goal would be to have people make money because you have no choice. Now that people are past seeing their house as an ATM and thinking that anybody can get rich no matter what because it only goes up, it doesn't come down, which, of course, everybody's learned that hard lesson. Now we're back to good old-fashioned, how do I take care of my nest egg and make it grow? Because I can assure you, if you don't think that way, you won't have a nest egg or not much of one when you wish it was there. Right. So I really want to see people develop their the plans for the story of their life. I want to see them get the tools they need from the academy and elsewhere if they like, but at a minimum from the academy because it's one of the few places you'll get this level of, of quality information which isn't biased by a decision that influenced by making money or not. So I really urge people to let us know. If you'd like to be, if you want to encourage us to do Twitter, let us know. If you'd like to be on the Twitter list, let us know. Because it's something we're seriously thinking of doing, just given how fast information is changing today's modern world. Right. No, I think that's an excellent idea, and I hope people take you up on that for sure. The other thing I want to just mention about the concept of time frame is that very few people who invest ever think about the notions of short, middle, and long term. I said that question before that I asked people is, that's the long-term answer. The short term is your monthly nut, and it doesn't matter whether it's 100 a month, 1,000 a month, or I have people go through 100,000 a month. You need to know what your short term expenses are, what your cash flow is. You need to understand what you need to protect yourself every day, which is something a lot of these people who got into mortgages over the head did not know or understand. And that, that short term money should never, ever be in the market. Because as I always try to remind people, the market, and as you certainly know, Ronaldo, the market simply does not care about your life. It is what it is, and you need to function around and through that. So always we insist on people keeping enough short-term money to cover their expenses. The second category, which is also frequently overlooked because people want to suddenly invest everything and make money, is what I call midterm or cushion money. These are funds that are there for the rainy day. The house burns down, a health crisis, you need a new car, things that happen regularly to all of us but are not part of our regular routine. That money should also be very safe. Somewhere, either fixed income or CDs or some other kind of instrument that may vary a little bit and may not give you huge returns, but is going to be there for that emergency crisis, that rainy day. It's the long-term area where we truly focus on investments, where you can afford to ride out a crisis, uh, such as we had in 2008 or a dip we had earlier this year and this month, that's still going on, 
that we're seeing a nice reversal today with the market up around 200 points. Um, but these things happen in such rapidity that only in your long-term investments can you truly say, I want to work gold, I want to work oil, or I hate oil, I want to work equities, I want to be in bonds, that you can make those decisions in a rational, calm fashion and know that at the end of the day, you don't have to sell to pay your mortgage. Yeah, we, do have another, we, we do have we do have another question popping up, Ronaldo, okay. that I'd like to okay, get to this listener. Yeah. And that's, uh, I'm going to open you up in a second, and the last four digits of your number are 0125. Okay, go ahead. You are on the air. Hello, this is uh, Tony down in Los Angeles. How are you guys? Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. Uh, my question would be, you know, Ronaldo mentioned either in this term or the next with the president, King Oil being dethroned. Do you see a successor or a long-term investment that someone could play to profit from that, as well as invest in something positive or something sustainable? What do you think is the, the logical next step, and uh, how could someone as an investor make money from that in your mind? That's a great yeah. question. Great question. First of all, yes, uh, the, the, the renewable sector is what's going to replace it. And for those people who haven't, you know, read yet the book we did that came out a little over, I guess, two almost three years ago now. If they uh, yeah, about two plus two and a half years ago, uh, take a look at freedom from Mideast oil because everything that you need to know about which the broad, the broad field of renewables is in there, and the specific renewable technologies that we are going to have. Um, that will be economically viable in the short term and the medium term are listed there. Uh, the real potential winners in the Midwest uh, are different than the real potential winners, for example, in, in, in the far west or the east. Um, you'll see everything in there from geothermal technology, which we call the sleeper technology. You'll see that we pushed very hard on, and, and, and we're gra I'm glad I did, on brown gas, which is the conversion of harmful meth levels of methane from these giant pig farms into electricity, also dairy farms. Uh, you will see that we've talked a lot about um, solar, about wind, uh, all these different technologies. Now, when you get up to speed on the technologies and the ones that you think after reading the book that are the ones that are most likely for you because they have the right ratio of risk and or safety to reward. So if you want to bet on cellulosic ethanol, you're taking a big gamble. Do I think it will happen? Sure. Is it going to happen soon? No. If you want to gamble on uh, corn-based ethanol, I'd say that that's a bad bet no matter what. So if you have a high appetite for risk, you might want to play in the cellulosic ethanol world. If you have a low appetite for risk, that's not where you want to be. Um, you might want to be in thin film solar. Uh, you certainly want to be careful, though, even within technologies, take solar, where the Chinese are coming to market, and I don't see how an American manufacturer of conventional solar panels will be able to be competitive with the Chinese pricing. And that's what's kind of happening in the marketplace. Now, we are going to get a boost uh, if, they, if, if a new law is passed and there are preferences, which we expect for domestic suppliers. But generally speaking, if you wanted to go out and buy solar panels just because you thought solar panels were a good idea, be careful. The Chinese are already making them cheaper and are dominating the industry. They're, even out, they're, make, they're outdoing the Germans. They're outdoing the, 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 the Scandinavians. So those are the kinds of things. If you, if you want to invest in, in, in wind power, uh, there are some places in India that make wind turbines uh, cheaper than GE, although GE seems to be very competitive in that area. Uh, there are uh, technologies like geothermal, which have yet to be fully tapped, uh, and I think could be great long-term investments, but it's hard to get in there. So there are many different ways to look at the marketplace and the technologies. Start by learning the technologies, then look at the place you want to be. And I, I just want to uh, echo what Howard said. See, if you know that the part of your money that you are investing is for something that you really have to have available, where safety is a higher priority, 
don't take big risks. There's plenty of ways to get tremendous returns without taking giant risks. Conversely, if your basics are handled and you've got a very stable, diversified risk portfolio for your short and, and intermediate term, and you want to set aside 10 or 15% of your portfolio for taking bigger chances with the chance of bigger upside, then that's appropriate to get into something that's a newer technology which hasn't yet fully been developed. Let me give you an example. Right now, I've been buying natural gas limited partnerships since last October, and there are many ways you can buy them. Because I knew the price of natural gas was coming down, and I figured the people who owned the pipeline would have a bigger flow of revenue because more natural gas would be going through the pipeline. What's happened in the Gulf Coast is just making those investments even better. And because pipeline ownership can often be done as a master limited partnership, I get current income, not just capital gains. So I'm really delighted with the, you know, the fact that natural gas, I wouldn't want to own the gas right now, but I love owning the piece of the company that transports the gas to market. Okay, so if you learn the technologies, you know, A, natural gas is a transition technology. B, getting it to market is something you can invest in relatively safely and relatively easily. So, so you really have to know a lot to know where you're going to go, and that's why I say be sure to, to keep tuned in to good sources of information. As in all things, knowledge is your best protection. If you try to do this by throwing darts, as people did in flipping houses, you will end up with the same result we just got in the, in the bubble that burst. If you go at this like a workman, like a mason building a cathedral, your financial cathedral will be there when you want to walk through the door. Ronaldo, we're almost out of time, so we'd like to wrap up. And I also remind our listeners we will keep the lines open for any final questions that people have. Uh, again, dial in 347-989-8946 and hit the number one on your keypad once you're in. Ronaldo, final thoughts? The short final thought is this. I'm, I'm very concerned that people are being unduly influenced by a lot of political rhetoric uh, and, and a very confusing amount of rhetoric, and they're missing probably the biggest story of 2010, which is an incredible change that's happened, a sea change really, in the way government agencies are starting to respond under the Obama administration. I think we need to put pressure on our government, no matter whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president. We need to keep the pressure on to straighten up these agencies. I could list for you at least 10 of these agencies that have now had a good house cleaning. MMS was way overdue, but having an agency which is supposed to promote and regulate the same industry is an inherent conflict that will always end in destruction. You're seeing it in the Gulf Coast. I don't want to see it in a nuclear-shaped cloud over one of the reactors, or worse yet, have the thousands of people who are dying from toxic level of nuclear radiation end up being hundreds of thousands. So I ask people, be thoughtful, and, and, and start reading more, start examining, start looking behind uh, the news, try to find news that's insightful rather than happy talk. Uh, try to, to, to find sources of information like the Academy and others that are giving you something that's just straight information that's not coming with a lot of curves and isn't being peddled like a candy cane. And if we do that, if we exercise that independent discipline one at a time, we will successfully be able to recreate an economy in the United States that works better for everyone else. And more importantly, we'll start the transition to a global economy and a global society that provides an opportunity for every man, woman, and child on this earth to be free from want of food, shelter, water, medicine, education, regardless of gender. That's our job, and we can accomplish that. We're on the verge of it, but we're going to have to be smarter and more diligent in order to achieve it. Thank you, everyone, for coming in and tuning in today. It's been a pleasure as always. All right, and thank you, Ronaldo, for hosting today's call. I know you've been traveling a lot. 
I also want to remind our listeners that we'll be back again next month. Uh, in the interim, if you have specific questions or issues you'd like to see us address, uh, we're more than happy to do that. Uh, just email us at the Academy or call into the office and uh, leave your suggestions. And with that, let me bid everybody good day and good month, and we'll catch you back in July. Thank Bye-bye. you, Howard. Bye-bye.